0: Hi everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 68 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, I am so privileged to get to interview one of my heroes, and perhaps the world's greatest living interviewer, James Lipton. He is, of course, the host of Bravo's Inside the Actor Studio, which has been on the air since 1994, making it the second longest running series in cable history behind only the real world. The show, on which he interviews actors and actresses and other artists about their lives and careers, is seen in 94 million American homes and in 125 countries around the world. It's been lovingly parodied by many, including most famously Will Ferrell on Saturday Night Live, and has accumulated 16 Emmy nominations over the years, one of which resulted in a win in 2013 in the category of Outstanding Informational Series or Special. It's eligible in that category again this year for a season in which Lipton's guests included... Brian Cranston, Steve Carell, Sarah Silverman, and the cast of The Walking Dead. Over the course of our conversation, Lipton, who is nearing his 90th birthday despite looking at least 30 years younger, reflects on his complicated childhood, his days as a child actor on radio's The Lone Ranger, his move to New York, where he initially intended to pursue law but wound up at the actor's studio and on live television, the unusual evolution of his career thereafter, during which he wrote books and musicals, produced Bob Hope's annual birthday specials and Jimmy Carter's presidential inauguration and returned to the world of academia, and much more about all of that. I think you'll also be interested to learn about his time as a pimp in France. Yes, you heard that correctly. And his most memorable moments on Inside the Actor's Studio, his thoughts on retirement, and his own answers to the Bernard Pivot questionnaire that he famously poses to his guests at the end of every episode. This was one of the most special interviews that I've ever gotten to do for reasons that you'll hear in a moment, and I hope that you enjoy it as well. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Lipton, thank you so much for joining us, and I want to tell you that this is as special as any interview I've ever done because... I don't think I would be doing interviews if it were not for you. I grew up watching Inside the Actors Studio religiously, and as a kid in junior high school, because of the show, I decided to start writing letters to great survivors of the golden age saying, hey, I'm a kid that wants to get other young people into old movies, which I was obsessed with. And I said, I'd like to do an Inside the Actors Studio type of interview with you so that I can preserve your story for future generations, and lo and behold, many of them agreed to do it, and while the book that I said I was doing it for hasn't come to fruition yet, the career that has followed, whatever it may be, is really because of all of that, and so I want to thank you first of all for that, also for your time today, and so... I'm very very flattered and very honored, and uh, I thank you. Sure, well... To begin with, we always just ask for the record, where were you born and raised, and what did your parents do for a living? I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and raised there. Uh, my mother was a school
1: teacher. My father was the rather famous, I would say infamous, beatnik poet Lawrence Lipton, who wrote The Holy Barbarians, which is definitive of the beat generation. Uh, it was a uh, very in a way a very pressured childhood because my, not from my mother so much as from my father uh, my mother has told me and I have has given me evidence that uh, makes it seem to be the fact that I could read when I was one and a half <laughs> simply because my father I guess couldn't wait for me to read his poems but they, they both exposed me to words and literature at a very early age. I could apparently read when I was one and a half. She tells stories about traveling on the, uh, on the streetcar, which existed then in Detroit. and uh, I would sit on her lap and I would read the signs that passed us as we uh, progressed north on Woodward Avenue and people would stare at her. They thought she had a, a ventriloquist dummy in her lap. Uh, I didn't really understand what I was reading, but I could read them. At three, I was writing epic poetry, which my father faithfully transcribed. They were god-awful, I'm sure. They're <laughs> lost to memory, thank goodness. And uh, and then at 12, I wrote uh, three novels. It was a, a, a childhood that was devoted to words, to literature. Uh, however, my father left when I was six, and so it was left to my mother to, be, to continue my education and my upbringing. I didn't see him again until I was... I saw him for one day, and then again when I was in my 20s. I only saw him a few times in my life, but those are my parents. He was a very good poet and a very deficient
0: father. Now, one of the things anyone who's watched a lot of Inside the Actor's Studio learns is that a recurrent theme of these guests is... I don't know, either parental abandonment might be a way of looking at it or separation of parents.
1: I'm not sure that that is as pronounced on the show as I think it is. Perhaps, I mean, it certainly has happened to many, perhaps most of my guests. But the reason that I emphasize it so much, I think, is that it happened to me. Mm -hmm. And it corresponds to my life and childhood. And uh, so I, I do give it thought and time and attention on the show. It certainly is a theme. And I think that for many of the guests on the show, it seems to be, I'm not speaking for myself Mm -hmm. now, the reason that they went into the performing arts. It is a kind of outreach to the missing parent, saying, wherever you are out there, do you see me? Do you hear me? And I I, I suspect that that's so uh, for many of them, in my own case, It was quite the opposite, it seemed to me, for many years, because I set out to be anything but what my father was. He had abandoned us when we were six. We were very, very poor at a very tough time. And uh, my mother was not fond of him, and therefore neither was I. Uh, And so I, 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 I didn't, I just assumed that I had no feelings about him uh, and I kind of ignored him and he was not a part of my life. Also because he was a a beatnik and because he was very eccentric and very publicly eccentric, I decided that the only way that I could avoid becoming like my father was to go in an opposite direction and so uh, after that beginning in in literature and the arts which was very intense and which I dare say I enjoyed very much which meant a lot to me I turned away from it toward the more practical side of life and when I went to high school and then into the university it was with the intention of becoming what was clearly opposite pole from my father namely a lawyer (laughs) and so that was my that was my university intention and my training and uh, it was precisely because I wanted to avoid a a fate that would be parallel to my my father's and uh, it wasn't until I was in my uh, 20s that I veered and I veered very very sharply as I describe in my book Inside inside,
0: yes, and great book, I love that book and and I what it cues me to ask you next is that how does how does a person who is on the law track on the side decide to pursue acting, and why well, because
1: we didn't have any money, my mother and I and I had to work from the age of thirteen almost full time as I went to school full time to uh, Help support us. I had various odd jobs, and they didn't pay very much. And at one point in my life, I was... I, I always liked acting as an avocation, but only as an avocation. It was too close to the arts to... really to tempt me. But I loved doing it. And I was a member of the Catholic Theater in Detroit. Very, very good theater group. And one night, a director... Uh, a Detroit director named Ernie Ricca, came backstage and said, you're very good, why don't you turn professional? And I said, well, because I have to earn my living. I'm working at the New York Times now as a, just as a beginner, uh, and uh, as a copy boy, and i have begun writing some obits, and and I don't earn very much money, but do you think, he, he said, you'd have to join the union, which was then AFRA. And uh, I said, do you think the investment is worth it? Do you think that eventually, I'm not asking immediately, but eventually, do you think I can earn as much as an actor as I'm earning as a copy boy and obit writer (laughs) at the the Detroit Times? Yes. And uh, he said, yes, I think you can. So I joined the union. Lo and behold, in short time, I auditioned for and was accepted as the nephew of the Lone Ranger. At that time, The Lone Ranger was an immense radio program, three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, coast to coast. It originated in Detroit, and I was his nephew, Dan Reed. (laughs) And uh, so now, lo and behold, I could earn my living, earn a real living, help my mother a lot, and help myself and support myself in school. And it was fine because it occurred at night, three nights a week, and during the day I was going to to college, and it it just was swell. And uh, it, it, it worked out perfectly for me.
0: This was all in Detroit?
1: This was in Detroit. That was where the Lone Ranger originated. Wow. And that's how I became an actor. Then uh, I went into the Air Force. At, uh, and, uh, uh, and when I came back to Detroit, I repaired immediately to New York. There was no way I was going back to Detroit. <laughs> and I realized I was going to finish the law training in New York. And I realized that I was on a very fast track. New York at that time was the uh, was the nest of all of the great teachers Stella Adler, Lee Strasberg, Sandy Meisner. All of them were in New York, and all the great actors were living and working in New York, and training in because oh, that's where the teachers were, mm-hmm. and that was the golden age of training in New York and of acting. Marlon Brando was acting in the theater, et cetera. And I looked around me and I thought, well, I'm never gonna be able to get, I was still, it was still an avocation. I was still gonna support myself to become a lawyer. The <laughs> dream was still alive, right. if you call it a dream. The fear was still alive. Right. And um, so I, uh, I thought, well, I would better get some training if I'm going to be able to support myself to finish the law training. And so I went around and talked to some teachers. I met with Stella Adler. And that was a revelation. Uh, She took me on. And about six months into the training, it was a two-year course, an intensive course, Uh, I said to myself one day, who are you kidding? You don't want to be a lawyer. This is what you really want. And that was the turning point. I then spent two and a half years with Stella, stayed an extra six months as her assistant, mm. four years with Harold Klerman, her ex-husband, who had founded the group theater, two years with Bobby Lewis. I studied uh, voice up to the operatic level. I studied uh, movement, dance movement, with Hanya Holm, Modern Dance, and Alvin Nikolai. I studied uh, ballet with Benhar Carvey and uh, Chiketty Ballet with Ella Duganova. Uh, I was training myself night and day for a period of about 10 years because there was no equivalent then of what I was getting piecemeal. I couldn't get it in one piece. And um, today, of course, it is the core curriculum of the Actors Studio Drama School, but that's skipping way (laughs) ahead. But the point is that I, that I, 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 I both trained and worked in the theater at night and soap operas in the day, which were what all actors did in those days light, because it right. was it was perfect. Yeah. You could work in the daytime, earn your living, and then at night you could st- work in the theater and you could study and it could all happen at once. And that was about 10 years of my life. And it totally consumed me. It was the most important time of my life
0: and it was my education. So in addition to some of the soap operas, I believe, Guiding Light being one of them. I, I know that you also appeared on Broadway. You uh, were writing, I believe, as well at the time? No, I wasn't quite
1: writing yet. Okay. I still was not willing to write. Uh, that was too close to my eccentric father ah. and to the possibility that there was something in my DNA that would poison my system if I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't until I was about twenty eight that I succumbed and began to write, because I had begun writing, first, of all, I was acting in soaps, then I was writing the soaps, and then I began writing for television, which was happening in New York, and it was a very, very busy industry. And that was very, I was suddenly very successful in it. And was I was it writing still live television. Yes, it was yeah. live television. And uh, so I, I wrote, uh, I began writing and uh, began seriously writing. And by that time, the transition was
0: effective, affected, and complete. Did you reach the conclusion that you were a more talented writer than an actor? I never thought of it in those terms. I don't know how
1: talented I am to this day as a writer. It's not for me to say. But it certainly was the greatest excitement, the deepest pleasure. I knew. I, I, I realized that it was something that I really wanted to do. But it took me all that time to shed the, uh, the, the discomfort and, and really fear that it had
0: inspired in me until then. I believe that in the 60s, or actually the 50s, you ended up in France. Oh, I know where we're going. Well, that's not the only thing, but I'm curious, why were you in France?
1: I was in France because by this time I was a reasonably successful actor. I was acting in the theater, uh, I was in the Autumn Garden by Lillian Hellman, directed by Harold Klerman. Uh I was uh, acting in television uh, and because uh, primetime television was still in New York. And I was cast in the lead of a uh, film called The Wheel of Fire that was to shoot in Greece so I, who had grown up as a very, very poor kid in Detroit, who couldn't even think, who couldn't dream that he would ever be able to go anyplace, and going to New York was about as exciting as I could imagine and achieve, suddenly I was off to Europe. went to Europe, and uh, I, I was I arrived in Paris and had word from the producer and the director that they were a little slow getting started in Greece in the film. I played the lead. And um, that I should uh, remain there until further notice. So I stayed there for about a month while they got everything together in Greece. Ultimately went to Greece to shoot the film. At that time the Greek government would fall almost every week Mm -hmm. and there would be a new uh, array of palms out for, uh, for bribes and ultimately the film collapsed and was not done. So I went back to Paris, but I wasn't ready to go back to New York. I felt that there was something happening to me in Europe that was very important to me. In French, the words are "rite de passage," rites of passage, and uh, of course, we all know the people who went through them: Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald, and uh, all of the Americans who lived in Paris in the thirties, and then in the forties, after the war, who returned to Paris. And uh, I was filled with that, that, that excitement and, and dream, and I needed to stay there. And I didn't know how I could. I couldn't get a, the equivalent of an American green card. I couldn't work there, and I was faced with having to go back to New York, which I didn't want to do. I felt I wanted to
0: stay there for a while.
1: Well, are you ready for this now? <laughs> <laughs> Is this where we should go?
0: Well, please.
1: When I had arrived in Paris, I had gone by boat, and I made f- friends with a young French fellow who had been in the United States, and he was my guide to Paris. And on one occasion, he took me to the Rue Pigalle, which was where everybody wanted to go. In those days, sex was France, and America was pure, pure, <laughs> Nothing like that existed in America. And so we went to, I was all excited. Let's go to Rupi Gall and see what happened. <laughs> and we were, this was in March, right. cold. It was only a few years after the war. France was still very poor. There weren't very many tourists and we were assailed by these young women who, 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 who wanted our custom, <laughs> which I, was, I wasn't about to give them. That was not my style. But uh, they offered us a, an exhibition of two women which in those days was extremely exotic and virtually unknown in America. When you say an
0: exhibition, essentially a striptease? No, not it? a
1: striptease, they would make love. Ah. You know, they would take us to the bordello and they would get undressed and they would make love to each other. And um, so <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that was a, a splendid idea. Yeah. And so we, we came up with the money and went up to the, to the bordello and up to the room and then they, we watched this exhibition was rather impressive for me <laughs> uh, and uh, then we went downstairs and uh, he and I, Fernand and I, and he was a real Parisian, tough he uh, spoke a real Parisian argot a slang, and he saw this these curtains and he pushed through them and lo and behold we were in a little bar which was part of the bordello but was not available to the public, only the girls between jobs enter their mech is a French word for pimp, but means something quite different. Mm-hmm. And they would sit in there and to- eat artichokes for some reason and, um, and drink and talk between jobs. And we sat down. They tried to chase us out, but he replied in this, this real Parisian Argo. And he wouldn't move. And then came the two girls that we had just hired. And they sat down with us, which made us acceptable. In short, that night, we became friends. Uh, and the young woman, a blonde woman, was from uh, Cannes, very beautiful. She looked like the women we were accustomed to seeing from Cannes, blonde and young <laughs> and beautiful. And we became very, very good friends. I don't mean lovers, we became friends. And uh, subsequently, I went back there to visit her, which I did frequently. And we really became friends, uh, which more or less precluded our becoming sexual partners because I had two choices. One was to pay her for her services, which was out of the question. Uh-huh. It would have destroyed the friendship. Or two, to uh, uh, do it for nothing, but in between clients, and that was equally. So, so we, were, we were platonic friends, right. but very deep friends. I then, at that point, I got the call to go to Greece. I went to Greece, I came back to Greece. To, I came back to Paris and went straight to the bordello, and now uh, this friendship resumed. After a few, couple of months, one night I told her I had to go back to the United States. I, she said, why? I said, because I'm, she said, you're broke, aren't you? And I said, well, yes. And she said, no problem, you'll be my mech. Now, a mech is short for macro in French. And if you saw Yamal Douce, you know the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in it was very different in those days. the young women were they were all licensed, they were inspected medically weekly. It was not a disgrace. There were very few jobs in those days for women or for men it was shortly after the war. And the women went into the what was called a milieu uh, without disgrace and left it without disgrace. Some were putting their husbands through college, some were, my friend, Régine, was saving up to buy a perfumery in Cannes. They were all quite serious, and some were very smart, and, and uh, it was just quite different from what you would imagine. And uh, Sure enough, uh, she got permission for me to be her mech, and I would go to the American Express office during the day in the Place de l'Opera. And there would be all these American tourists, and, and they would be besieged by guides who would say, we'll take you to Saint-Chapelle, we'll take you to Notre-Dame, we'll take you to the Louvre, personally guided tour, and I would say, I will take you to Rupigal. <laughs> well, we did a roaring business, right. I would take them there for exhibitions. so They always insisted that I be there because they were frightened to go to Rupigal, and mm-hmm. I would translate for them to the, either the two women or the man and woman whom mm-hmm. they hired. And so I spent the next few months. It was a great time of my life. And um, I think that's enough on the subject, yeah. except, <laughs> except to say that I did stay in Paris. I, during the days, I was able to be be and do all the things that I wanted to be and do. And, uh, and uh, we were great friends. And I eventually did have to come back to the United States. There was no question about it. And uh, I have, as I say in my book, ever since then, every time I go to Cannes, I look for a perfumery
0: that says Regine. Did you lose touch? You never... I, never? I
1: never saw the perfumery.
0: I never heard from her again. Wow. Was that also the end of acting for you?
1: Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. I came back as an actor. I worked as an actor. This was when I was very, very young that mm-hmm. I did that in Paris. No, I had many years as an actor. And uh, it was only as I transitioned to writing, years later, Mm -hmm. that uh, I really essentially became a writer. And then, because there are lots of actors and lots of writers and lots of directors and very few competent producers Mm -hmm. who don't either muck up the work of the artists, although they can raise money, or who are sympathetic to the artists but can't raise money but the producers is the, is the is the big lack mm-hmm. the big hole and so i began to produce simply to produce my own work because it seemed the most the best way to proceed the most logical way to proceed the most effective way to proceed and so i began to produce
0: when and how did you and bob hope connect because that was i know for you some of the the highlights of your producing career were with him. In um,
1: 1976, one night, my wife and I were watching the Monday Night Football, exercising our right to hurl invective at <laughs> Howard Cosell. And um, I the phone rang about 11.30. It was from Lenny Bernstein. And um, uh, he, he said, hello, Jim. I said, hi, Lenny, how are you? What do you do? I'm watching football. He said, uh, I bet you're surprised to hear from me. And I said, uh, well, sort of at this hour. He said, I can't keep a copy of An Exaltation of Larks, my book about group terms like Gagorff Keyes and Pride Lions, which had become a bestseller. And uh, so I said, said, why? He said, people steal it. I said, I'll I'll send you another copy. He said, they'll steal it. I said, I'll send you ten. (laughs) Put nine in the vault and one on your coffee table. And uh, he said, they'll steal them all. And I said, Lenny, why are you calling me? He said, I need you. <laughs> and I said, why? He said, are you for Carter and Mondale? And the election was underway. And I said, yes. And he said, well, I'm doing the big event in Washington. And uh, it's going to be huge. I've got the Washington... A harmonic or a symphony, whatever it's called, and he said, and the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, is producing it, and it's going to be a disaster, <laughs> and I said, well, what? Do you, why are you calling He said, you've got to produce it, because I had done this immense event, this immense uh, event to save the Library of the Forming Arts. I had all the greatest artists in, in, in the world on the stage of the Met. There's never been a bigger event. That was my first production. I'd done it as a, in order to save the Library of the
0: Performing Arts. How much earlier had that
1: been? About a year earlier, okay. and I tried to get him to do it, and he wasn't able to, but he knew what had happened. Right. Rishnikov's first appearance in New York, it was uh, It was uh, the Star-Spangled uh, Gala. That's correct. It was enormous. There'd never been anything like it. And so I was suddenly a producer, but of, of, of these, uh, these non-profit charity events. And he said, you've got to come and produce it. I said, when? He said, 10 days. I said, are you kidding? I'm working. He said, you've got to do it. He said, my career is on the line. So uh, I, I said, I can't. He said, what are you doing tomorrow night? I said, uh, nothing. He said, well, you and your wife come and s- come to Carnegie Hall. I'm conducting the, one of the orchestras. I think Israeli Philharmonic. Come and sit in my box. So we did. Afterward, we, he took us to the party. Then he took me into a bedroom at this, at this uh, <laughs> apartment where The party was occurring, and he locked the door. He said, I'm not letting you out until you tell me you do this. So I did it. And I went to Washington, and I put together in 10 days a a huge event which featured Rosalind Carter, among others, and I had stars coming from New York. It worked beautifully. And midway through it, at the intermission, uh, the uh, Carter people came to me and said, "Will you do the inaugural gala. And I said, you get them elected, and I'll do the gala. (laughs) They did, and I did. (laughs) And it was the first... First of all, the first television production out of Kennedy Center, and second, it was the first inaugural gala ever televised in America, wow. uh, and it was an enormous success. And as a result, I got a call from the USO, and they said, uh, "Can you do for us what you did for Bob Hope?" Because people don't know that we are not publicly we are pub we are not publicly funded. We are privately funded. And they think that when there's no war on, there's no need for us. So I said, well, there's a fellow named Bob Hope who's about to turn 75. If you can get him to give you his birthday, Mm -hmm. uh, then I think I could do it. They did. And I sold it to the network, to NBC. And I said, I'll make this an annual event. Let's make his birthday a national holiday. He was turning 75. Mm -hmm. And for the next 12 years, I did it with uh, all over the world, China, France, England, all over the United States, all of the academies, of the military academies. And uh, it was a formative period for me. I learned so much from the man, and he was very paternal toward me because it was a huge success. Uh-huh. It was late in his life, and suddenly he was in the forefront of the news and of show business again, and he, he was,
0: we had some amazing adventures. You mentioned that he was very paternal to you, and I wonder, do you think that part of the reason that relationship took off is, as much as it did, and the reason that you were so fond of him, was that because of the absence of your own father, perhaps you were seeking a father figure?
1: I don't know, um, uh, halfway through Inside Inside, I, can, I suddenly, there's a revelation. And I say, I realize as I read this book, which is a lengthy book, that many of the things that I've done in my life have been in pursuit of someone who might be a father figure, or more important, of family, mm-hmm. because I was an only child. And I didn't realize that until I was writing Inside Inside, but that was only a few years ago. Yeah. So I didn't realize it then. Uh, it was more or less professional but it was very, very close. He liked to work at night. He was an ex Villian, so we would work until 11 o'clock at night. And then he would always take a walk before he went to sleep. And those walks in Beijing, in Paris, in London, in New York, in Los Angeles, and wherever, were some of the most wonderful experiences of my life. In Palm Springs, where he had a house, he would talk, and I would listen, and I learned a great deal from him. I'm very grateful to him for that experience. We were very different. It was a great difference in age. It was a political difference. He was very conservative. I'm not. Mm-hmm. He knew that. He knew I'd been in the Carter, the Carter administration. I did the cultural events in the Carter administration for four years in the White House. And so he certainly knew that. And yet, uh, this transcended all of that. We were. We were, a kind of family.
0: How did academia <coughs> reenter the picture for you?
1: With the Bob Hope years, I was now a producer. But I was still acting. I was writing. I was directing. I was very, very busy in our community. And I was persuaded by Norman Mailer to come and look at the Actors Studio. I had been trained by Stella Adler, by Harold Klerman, by Robert Lewis. That was not Lee Strasberg in the Actors Studio. Not not that there was any great... Difference, but that was where I was. And he said, You've got to come to the studio and see what we're doing. So I went there. Arthur Penn was moderating that day. He said, Oh my God, I can't believe it. He made me a member of the uh, directors, the uh, writers, and directors unit on the spot. Because you knew him from. I knew him from, from life. I knew him. Yeah. From, no, no, I knew him from life and from yes. work. He was a friend. Anyway, I became involved in the actors' studio. I became very involved in the actors' studio, extremely involved. I wrote, I directed things I'd written. And um, this was at a time 24 years ago, a quarter of a century ago, when the, uh, most of the actors had moved out to Los Angeles because television had gone there. And therefore, it was no longer possible for actors to live in New York as I had, as so many had, in the 50s and 60s, um, and both work and, and, and study so off they went. So the, all of the arts in New York had fallen on very hard times at that point, if you remember. The city was in big trouble. And the studio was in great danger of, uh, of, of vanishing after 47 glorious years when it had led the world in delivering some of the greatest actors, and writers, and directors of our time. And. Um, It was very worrisome. It looked like it might be the end of the road. And one night after a meeting, by that time I was on the board, and one night after a board meeting I I couldn't sleep and finally I fell asleep. And I woke up the next morning and something was crystal clear in my mind. Everything. All the details of it. And I said to my wife, who was a graduate of the Parsons School of Design, which is at, was at the New School for Social Research, and whom I'd accompanied to dinners at the residence of the president, Jonathan Fanton. I wonder if Jonathan Fanton would talk to me if I called him. Would he remember me? I was there as your spouse. Well, she said, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So I called him, and I, now the New School, during the 1930s, had rescued hundreds of artists and academics from the from the Nazis, among them Piscotter, who had started the Piscotter Dramatic Workshop, where Marlon studied, where Tennessee Williams studied, and it was a great time for the New School. Then he went back to Germany after the war. And I said to him, what if at the stroke of a pen one could restore to you something of the glory of the Piscater years? And he said, go on. And I said, what if I could persuade my colleagues at the Actors studio? To, for the first time in 47 years, to to uh, create a degree-granting program away from the studio, outside the studio, and uh, and place it at the new School. He said, where's the pen and when do I sign? <laughs> I went back to a meeting of the studio and I said, look, we have a chance here. Why don't we, look, we all work independently. People come in, they do exercises, it's still a private, private place, just as grumpy and mysterious as ever the door is closed to the public which is the whole point it's a gymnasium what if we open the doors not to let the public in but to let the the so called method the system out well Victor Hugo said it nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come (laughs) and they said go for it so I went back to the new school and created the actors studio drama school with my colleagues in the studio Norman Mailer Paul Newman Ellen Burstyn Lee Grant Carlin Glynn I you mean, know, a powerhouse roster, and we, and, but we created the, the curriculum. The, the rule was that it would, all of the core courses would be taught by life members of the Actors Studio. This was a revolution. And in short order, I took it back to the new school, and they said, go. And in short order, it was accredited by the state, in very short order. And suddenly, we were confronted with having to bring in students, which we were now permitted to do because we were an accredited university program. We did, in three years, we were the largest graduate drama school in America, and I had been persuaded to, I was writing my third musical at that point, and I was halfway through it, but the studio said, you've got to start it. You, this was your notion, you've got, to, you've got to, to, to begin this program. So I accepted the leadership of it for a year, <laughs> which turned into 10 years and a deanship. Uh, something I never dreamed I would do. I had to drop a lot of other things, but it became, in many ways, of course, my letter to the world, and it's something of which I'm very proud. It now exists at Pace University, where it's very happily ensconced, and it is a great school. It is exactly what I had awakened with that morning, even to the curriculum and the credits. It's incredible. And uh, it is uh, one of the prides of my life, I am no longer the dean. I'm dean emeritus, and Andreas Manolakakis is a, is a brilliant chair of the program. And so it
0: flourishes.
1: And that,
0: of course, led to something called Inside the Actors Studio. You, you. you know where I'm going. So I guess the first thing I have to ask you before we dive into how that evolved is had you ever really interviewed anyone before that never, course?
1: Never, never. I'm not a journalist. It was not my intention. I had thought of it initially. What happened was that I got all of the, my, my faculty, who could work 30 weeks a year. Then I got people like Lee Grant and Ellen Burstyn, who would come and do six master classes on Fridays and so forth. But there was one category missing, and that was people who were so famous that they could only give me one night. Mm-hmm. So I sent a letter out to the community, to our community, first to the Actors Studio, and then to other people that they and I had worked with, saying, would you come and teach our students? And the response was amazing. It was Paul Newman, it was Dennis Hopper, it was Sally Field. It was, I mean, suddenly they were all saying yes. And the format was essentially the same as it is today? Exactly. It was the, the idea was that it would be a masterclass, a live masterclass, nothing to do with television. Mm-hmm. But once they had answered, I sent word back into the community from which I had come, where I, was, where I was known and where I knew people. And I said, look, these people are liable to say something worth preserving. That requires television. Anybody interested? Bravo
0: was. And can you set the scene at that time? Bravo was, what 20,
1: 20, million, 20 million people. It was cable vision. It was on cable vision. Twenty million people in the east. It was a small, very small network. But they were interested. They said yes, and so we began. And uh, I will let me put it this way: it took off, of course. Ultimately, Bravo grew on, on its strength. Bravo—it was nothing. Bravo was nothing but our show inside the Actors Studio and movies, until NBC bought it. And the trades, the reporter, the Variety said that they bought it to get inside the Actors Studio. And Bob Wright, who was then president of NBC, confirmed it to me. <laughs> I mean, there was nothing else <laughs> there. Exactly. Now, now, subsequently, there yeah, were great things true. there, right. and and Francis Burrick, who is its president, has done a magnificent job. But the point is. That when the transfer came to NBC, uh, it really was essentially us. And, and I, I have said, on occasion, when interviewed, <laughs> they have said, "Gee, what, what, what prescience you had! What omniscience! What, what foresight you had!" I have denied it correctly, and and correctly for these reasons. If you had 23 years ago. put a gun to my head and said, I will pull the trigger <laughs> unless you predict that in 23 years inside the Actors Studio will be viewed in 94 million homes in America on Bravo and in 125 countries around the world <laughs> that it will have received 18 Emmy nominations, making it the fifth most nominated series in the history of broadcast television. That will it that it will have received an Emmy Award for Outstanding Informational Series, and that you will have received the Critics' Choice Award
0: as the Best Reality Series host. Predicted or die, I would have said pull the trigger. <laughs> and not only that, it is now, if, if my information's correct, the second longest running series in the history of cable after only the real world. And that itself is an amazing testament to its... And I foresaw none of that. (laughs) So let's address something that I've come across. This this run could have been a lot shorter if, as was at one point the wish of Bravo, you had been forced to get rid of the student Q&A portion, right? That was only part of it.
1: At the end of the first year, we were now Bravo's... Bravo's number one show. We were the signature show. There was no question about it. They admitted it. They brought in a focus group person. And uh, the Bravo executives came with the person to my home here where you are now. And they put the sh- uh, a show on the air and they put a, a map in front of me, a chart in front of me. And they said this, what, The focus group person said, this is what you must do. First of all... Forget about the fact that it's educational. No students, no classroom, not to mention that. Get rid of the PIVO questionnaire and stick to film clips and, and gossip and, and, and happy little stories. And I turned off my television and I said, thank you very much for coming. We were then negotiating the second mm-hmm. year and all the executives were there so this and, was just after the first in season. that room right next to you. Sir. Sure. They said, what are you talking about? I said, "Uh, the negotiation is over. We're done. And there was much confusion, but they left. (laughs) And I then went to Jonathan Fatton, the president of the new school, and I said, look, we're going to lose inside the actor's studio, which was going all over the world now and was making the new school a a big university from Uh a small one. And I told him the story, and he came around the desk, and I thought he was going to punch me, and he shook my hand. And a few weeks later, I was at the Hampton Classic, because I'm a an equestrian, I'm mm-hmm. a show jumper, and have been for many years. Yeah. Not now, I stopped a few years ago. But uh, Chuck Dolan, who was the, the chairman of, of Cablevision, which owned Bravo, also, his daughter was a great equestrian, and we would sit next to each other at two tables every year, and he, he said to me, I've, I've never been so proud in my life of anything as of your show and I said well he said well, my wife and I are going to come and see it this year we want to come in person I said forget it he said why I said the negotiation is over we're not going to be on your network what are you talking about I told him and he said I'll speak to you tomorrow he called the next day and then a few hours later the, one of the Bravo executives called and said I want you to know I had nothing to do with that crazy <laughs> focus group meeting they running away from it yeah. but they were heroic yeah, yeah. Bravo was heroic and uh, so we were saved, and, and, and so
0: I think were they. Yes. Now, a couple of logistical questions. How do you select your guests? It seems like in the early years, as you mentioned, there were a lot of primarily older, uh, experienced veterans who would come on. And now, increasingly, certainly in the since the move to Bravo, I feel like it's more people who are in the thick of their careers. And is, is that something that has just... Happen because you've exhausted some of the veterans, or is it? Is there pressure no, to get ratings? No, no
1: nothing's exhausted, and we have plenty of people. I have a huge list of people that I still want on the show. But uh, the remember that we are a, a master's degree program, so the average age of our students. Remember, this is a this is a master class. That's all it ever was, all it is now, all it ever will be. Inside the Actors Studio is a master class. Masters class in a university program. And the average age of our students is about 25 or 26. Well, why on earth would I not want artists, actors, writers, directors who are in that age group, it means the most to them. Those are the ones that excite them the most. It is a masterclass. That's the thing to remember about it. and. Um, so, of course, the, the guests have grown younger. For, but that's the main reason.
0: You're not pressured in any way about who you should have as a guest? I have
1: never been pressured. Bravo has
0: been a, a,
1: a perfect network. Francis Burke is the best boss I've ever worked for. They encourage me. They encourage the show. And they have made the show what it is. And uh, we... Uh, uh, I used to, in the beginning, about three-quarters of the people were of the guests, were people who, uh, whom I solicited, whom I cajoled, begged, pleaded with, threatened to get on the show because we were not well-known in the right. beginning. Right. Ultimately, we became well-known. And Today, many people think of it as a... Well, let me put it this way. Some of our guests and I think that we are creating the most important craft archive of our time. And so an appearance on Inside the Actor's Studio is is important to some of the people who appear on it.
0: Absolutely, and to the people who watch it. And I guess I want to ask you how you prepare for each of these. We see you up there with a million of these blue cards. I see one in front of me. And you're obviously very famously well-versed in your guests' lives. What is the preparation process from start to finish?
1: The preparation begins two, three, or four weeks before the guest arrives. Once the guest has agreed to do it, we've settled on a time and, and, and a, a date I, start, I go to work and I have a fellow named Jeremy Kerrigan who's a graduate of our program who gives me raw material he's, he's a whiz with the internet and mm-hmm. computers and sends me just tons of raw material on the guest and goes into my computer and it's, it is essentially shapeless yeah. I then have two weeks or three weeks or four if I, I need it uh, to turn it into a narrative with a beginning a middle, and an end. As I go through it, I begin to see certain themes, certain important moments, certain key aspects to it. And so I'm shaping essentially a narrative. That's what it's meant to be, with beginning, a middle, and an end. And I work seven days a week. I work about 12 hours a day, and I mean that 52 weeks a year. It requires that. Now, the reason that I do that is that I made two critical decisions when I started the show. One, that there would be no pre-interview. We are the only television show of our kind that has no pre-interview, the only one. What that does is it forces a conversation, but it also forces me to my desk 12 hours a day, 52 weeks a year because I'm doing all of the work in my computer by myself. And the result of that is that neither the guest nor I on our show knows what's coming next. What we've compared it to is a high wire in a circus high wire where the guest goes up the rope ladder at one side of the stage I at the other. We meet on that net for three or four or five hours, master
0: class. From which that hour is carved out
1: And we're up there with no net. And that's what forces the conversation. So that was decision one. decision two was that there would be no gossip and a focus on craft. I thought, so did everybody else in the beginning, that that would make us quite dry and arid and might doom us in the end. What I didn't realize that it was the key to the show's success. Because if I were to ask you for the key moments in your life that shaped you as a person and as, 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 a, as a journalist or whatever you do, and to describe it to our students, as you got into it, you would find, as our guests have, that the past comes back and emotions flood. The result is that we have become according to some one of the most intimate shows in the history of television
0: and there are many examples we could pick from but I think the one that stands out in my memory and maybe in yours as well is you have somebody like Steven Spielberg up there you're talking about his life you're making connections that he hasn't even made and he's amazed to, to think about it and yeah. so what are when you look back at those most memorable moments of episodes from the past which are the ones that stand out the most to you?
1: I think perhaps Jack Lemon, first of all, because Jack was a wonderful person, he was also it was also near the end of his life He's only he was only a few months from his death. I'd known him for years, not well, but I knew him, and he was wonderful our students. Were wonderful. We were talking about days of wine and roses, and uh, as always, uh, I was I am didactic, as Will Farrell points out often. <laughs> Uh, I am pedantic, as Will Farrell also points out <laughs> often. Those are students. I'm their dean. Now I'm their dean i We're teaching. I'm always trying to make a point. And I said, you know, Jack, the scene, there's a famous scene in the greenhouse. We smash it to get the bottle. Scene over your baby's crib. Scene in the straitjacket in prison. But the one that meant the most to me, the one that moved me the most, was your first moment in front of the AA meeting when you stood up and said those famous words. And then I paused because I like them to say them. They're famous words in front. I tried to get De Niro to say, he's talking to me. He wouldn't do it. (laughs) Uh, I did get uh, Tom Hanks to say, life is like a box of chocolates. Right. Uh, So I waited for him to say it, and he said it. He said, my name is so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. And I said to the student, you see, look, no pushing. He's not pushing you. It's got to come from you. You feel anything? Look how simple. Look how he said, which is true. I said, "What are you talking about?" And he said, "I am an I'm an alcoholic." I said, "Are you speaking as the character now or as Jack?" And he said, "I'm speaking as Jack. I'm an alcoholic." There follows the longest silence in the history of Inside the Actors Studio—15 seconds. I waited for him to go on. Clearly, he was done. And we moved on. Afterward, his wife said to me in the green, it was the first time he's ever said that in public. And the reason, I think, that the show sometimes has meaning and importance is moments like that. When people reveal things
0: about themselves that they would not otherwise have revealed. Remember that moment very clearly, and another one that I remember, which I think maybe meant more to you than any other, was when Bradley Cooper came on as a guest. Oh. Why was that so <clears throat> important to you?
1: Well, when I was asked, by this time we were, the show had, was in a hundred uh, over a hundred, countries around the world. It was, uh, it was, it was whatever it is now. It had had all these Emmy nominations. It was, it was beginning to be well regarded and so I was often asked what guest of all the guests in the world that you could have do you want and they waited for you know Marlon Brando for the obvious answers and I said the night that one of my graduated students has achieved so much that he or she comes out and sits down next to me will be the night I've waited for since we started inside the actor's studio maybe since I started my life lo and behold it was Bradley Cooper and when Bradley came out on that stage we looked at each other and we were in tears we had to pause because we couldn't go on and subsequently he cried through the whole yeah, right, show right. It, it's rather famous for that but the that was the moment that meant so much to me it, it brought I love a circular structure where things close with a click you know something from the past mm-hmm. comes back and mm-hmm. bang and when Bradley came on that stage that for me was for him it was a fulfillment because he'd been a student asking questions of Sean Penn Mm -hmm. and Bob De Niro as a student and now he was on the stage and for me it was a fulfillment because one of my students was back as a major never mind star never mind celebrity a major artist and it closed that ring with a click that almost
0: knocked me out of my chair now in all honesty and this is just curious to see how early you can spot things would you have guessed when bradley cooper was a student of yours that he could be that first one
1: the weird answer is yes he auditioned for me he had come from georgetown he was not he was studying to be i suppose a diplomat that's what georgetown Mm -hmm. specializes Mm -hmm. in or perhaps he said he was going on to get a phd and teach literature or philosophy. He came up on, on just on a whim with his teacher, who was terrible to audition. <laughs> I auditioned every single student who ever got into the Actors Studio while I was dean. And when it was over, I would go down to the stage and speak to them. Halfway through this scene that he was doing, he was raw. He was wrong. His teacher was terrible, as his, his partner. And I saw something. And it was unmistakable. I went down to the stage and I said. But I said on occasions, on rare occasions, when I felt somebody had it, in the event that we accept you, I can't tell you today whether we will, are you prepared to give the next three years of your life to us? Because we will be giving the next three years of our lives to you. And he said yes. And then subsequently, when he was on the stage as a star, as a guest, he said, I went back to Washington, I said, what did he mean? What did he mean? We were all trying to figure out what you meant. <laughs> and he said, uh, I, was, I was so scared, and so so I did see something. And then when he did his master's degree thesis, which our students do in, in a repertory season, which concludes their three years with us, which is unique among drama schools and is wonderful, he did The Elephant Man, which he subsequently took to Broadway. Of course, sat there, absolutely. And his parents were there. His father was near the end of his life. His father was dying. And they said to me, when he did his master's degree thesis, what do you think? And I said, this one is going all the
0: way. So I did know. You saw it. That's great. What is it, just on a personal level, that you like most about interviewing someone? Because you clearly seem to enjoy it or you wouldn't put yourself through it. So what is it about that?
1: Well, I can tell you the moments that I like most, and that's when things go wrong. That's when my two weeks or three weeks or four weeks of preparation, all my my three or four hundred cards, my blue cards, <laughs> are are suddenly thrown out the window because the guest has taken an entirely new direction that I had not known about, had not suspected, had not dreamed existed, and that's when I can go chasing after them, and that's the most fun of all.
0: You've now interviewed, I don't know the exact number of people on the show, do you know? No,
1: I don't know, but it's, well,
0: several hundred. So... That's a scientific sample size in my unscientific, uh, in my unexpert opinion. I feel like you can really probably make some conclusions from that. And so my question is, what are the things that you found most of these artists share in common?
1: It would seem on on the surface to be a very easy question to answer. In fact, it's a very difficult one. Each one of them is a singular soul they have things in common the the, the 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 divorce element of the show certainly they have that in common many of them come from mixed marriages and so the religious questions are interesting but the fact is that if i have had 400 guests or 500 whatever it is i have been face to face privileged To be face to face with four or five hundred entirely singular souls. And because there's no pre-interview, because we're up on that high wire with no net for three or four or five hours, we're on a journey together that is, for me, the greatest privilege of my life, to share that with them and to ask them to share it first with our students as a teacher in this master class and then with our viewers in 94 million homes in 125 countries. Uh, it is the singularity of the guests more than their similarities that has been for me the most fascinating aspect of Inside the Actor's Studio for 23
0: years. Sometimes I want to go and watch an old episode. I used to be able to find them on YouTube. Now I, I can't. And I wondered why not either make them available or sell them or put them as a box set or stream them or something so that this wealth of knowledge that you've accumulated and and, and has been put out before, has there been thought given to making them available again to people in some That's way?
1: that's really not my department I don't know quite how that is, works out but uh, I, I will take it under advised but yeah, I, no, I, I, just because
0: I miss them I, I want you want to go back and I know. see some of them again but one day many years from now when when you either decide you want to retire or walk away that day whatever, will never come so what will happen to inside the actor's studio I have no idea because I have do not,
1: I have never given
0: it a thought, a thought. but you uh, want it to continue beyond you now.
1: I dare say, but I haven't given it a single thought. I'm enjoying it immensely. We've just had the biggest year of our lives. The last two years, think, we've won the Emmy. I've won the Critics' Choice
0: Award. We've had our greatest guests ever. This season, Sarah Silverman, Brian Cranston, Steve Carell, Jeff Daniels, The Walking Dead cast, Christopher Maloney. Exactly. I'm about to do the girls.
1: It just gets bigger and bigger and more and more exciting, and I have not given a moment's thought sure. to it ever ending. I would not like to see it end and I, I would not like to see myself end if it cost to that. <laughs> well
0: you you are the most youthful looking person. I've never. It's unbelievable and thank you. I don't think you've aged in 25 years or whatever it's incredible. But I thank you very much. With why was Bernard Pivo such an influence on you? Why did you decide to end your episodes with his questionnaire and if I may mm-hmm. I would love to close by posing sure. his
1: question. Uh, Bivaud was quite simply the best television host of all time. He was on for 26 years. I was his final guest. And uh, he is he is on the air on CUNY, I think, still, even though he, has, he stopped doing his show. But he's never been translated into English. And I, I initially did it because I wanted someone to come up with the money to translate his show and put subtitles on it no one I've 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 failed in that it's one of the great failures of my life I've never been able to persuade anybody to do that so that other people could enjoy him sure he is absolutely brilliant uh, and many of the things I do I model after him particularly the homework and of course the questionnaire
0: which he asks and which begins with the question what is your favorite word honor What is your least favorite word? The N word, no matter who says it. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Words, they're our most precious natural resource. What turns you off?
1: Humiliation, especially toward a defenseless child.
0: What sound or noise do you love? Silence,
1: Silence. the most underestimated quality of life. What sound or noise do you hate? The din that passes for fun in many public places today. What is your favorite curse word? It's neither obscene nor scatological. It's profane, but offensive to some, and so I apologize. When I'm really upset, I say, Jesus
0: Christ. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
1: I would like to be a premier danseur, but forever young and never injured.
0: What profession would you not like to do? That's easy. Executioner. <laughs> And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates?
1: I answered this for Pivot for the first time on his last episode. Would you want it in French or in English? I'll give it to you in both if you want it. I'll take as much as I can get. I'll take both. Tu vois, Jim. Tu avais J'existe. Tu peux entrer tout de même. In English, you see, Jim. You were wrong.
0: I exist. But you may come in anyway. Well, I can't thank you enough. This is such an honor to speak with you, and it's surreal to interview you. And I re- thank you for all of the countless hours of enlightenment that you have provided. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very
0: much. I really appreciate it. Three.